0: Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to the Abraham and to, the off, to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather under your word with your people. And what we declare and what we believe is that these holy scriptures that we hold in our hands that have been read this morning and that we will proclaim now together, this is your very word. And so we, we believe in the power in it, and so we pray that you would use it. To give us exactly what we need. We pray that you would convict us if we need to be convicted, encourage us if we need to be encouraged. And would you help us to not merely be hearers of your word, but to leave this place obeying your word? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We are walking through the book of Galatians. If you're new to Trace Crossing, our typical practice through preaching is to preach through books of the Bible. Essentially, verse by verse. We're going to be preaching through the book of Galatians uh, right up until toward the end of March, and we're going to take a break and we're going to have a four week series uh, leading up to Easter. And then after Easter, we're going to pick Galatians back up and finish the book before the summer hits. We are seven weeks in, and this is our second week in chapter three. We will spend two more weeks in chapter three because it is one of the most glorious chapters in the entire Bible. Now, Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we've been learning, and I hope you've been seeing this, it is a letter for people like you and for people like me, people who forget just how radically gracious God is. Galatians is for people... At least like me, who are prone to add, to add demands to the free invitation of the gospel. God extends a free invitation, and I am prone to add demands to it. Surely I must do something to contribute. Galatians is for people like me, like you, who struggle to believe that Jesus really is enough for our souls. Galatians has been serving us. It's been serving us in the form of a warning. It's been serving us in the form of an offer. Paul has been warning us that if we add any requirements to the gospel, we lose the gospel. It's, it's Jesus, not Jesus plus something else. But he offers us this reminder after reminder that the gospel is news of a promise that God made long ago, and it's a promise that is fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A promise that guarantees eternal blessing for wretched sinners like us that have made messes of our lives. So, in Galatians 3, just to take you back, we've discovered that cultural Christianity is in fact nothing but foolish Christianity. We, we saw that when you believe that just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled onto your otherwise good and decent life, if, if that is the way you're living, you need to know that that will not help your case at all before a holy God. If we try to obey God's law in order to earn a place with him, we will only inherit a curse. That's what we saw last week. If, if we rely on Jesus for almost all of our salvation, 99% even, and then we try to contribute 1% through spiritual, religious, or moral performance, we remain under the curse of God. Because if you're going to try to obey part of the law, you're going to be held accountable for all of the law, and none of us can keep all of the law. So what we, what we said last week is that we either abandon ourselves and we cling to Jesus, or we abandon Jesus and we cling to ourselves or another idol, and there is no middle ground. Those are our two options. And we've also discovered, now this is just Galatians 3. This was just from one passage that we considered last week. But we've also discovered that the radical grace of God comes to us in the form of this message that we call the gospel we learn that the reason it is so foolish to rely on works of the law is because jesus took the curse of the law for us and he has set us free we saw it if you you have your bible there look at verse 13 in chapter 3 christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us We saw earlier in chapter 3 how we have received the Holy Spirit and we have taken part in the universal blessing that was promised to Abraham. And then we saw this this, this honestly almost unbelievable news. How do we get all of that? How how do we receive the benefits of what Jesus has done? And the answer is striking. Believe. Simple faith. Faith. Just by taking God at his word, just by believing in Jesus, our sins, our worst sins, our most repetitive sins, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins are forever forgiven. We forever belong to God, and we have a glorious future awaiting us, and none of this requires any effort on our end. God has done all that needs to be done for us to inherit the riches of his eternal kingdom. And I hope, and I know some of you started to feel this way because we've had conversations already. At this point in the letter, you may be asking, okay, whoa, whoa. I, all right, I, I get it, I'm not earning, but obedience is in the Bible, right? The law is in the Bible. Sure, like, I, I mean, it, it's... Are, are you a universalist? Like, I'm, I'm kind of confused here. I don't understand. Like, can I just, are you, are you saying that I can just sin all I want and God's just going to forgive me? And wh- where does obedience come into play? And where does the law come into play? I, I, you know, you start to squirm. We squirm. We squirm at the idea that God's love for us and the promised blessing for us doesn't change on the basis of our obedience. When we are faithful, God loves us. When we are unfaithful, God loves us. But what about works? You sound like James. You sound like James. What about works? What about the law? Now, God's grace, I get it. That's how it starts. But the rest of the journey, it at least involves our obedience, right? It at least involves, there's that word, you know, sanctification. We believe that we're becoming holy, we believe that we have a role. So I'm not hearing any of that. And so you're asking questions. What about the law? Paul has anticipated your questions. Paul has anticipated your questions. In in verses 15 through 25, Paul explores the relationship between God's free promise in the gospel and his demands in the law. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul shares what the law does not do. And then next week, in verses uh, 19 through 25, Paul shares what the law does do. So there is a relationship between God's promise of free grace received by simple faith in Jesus and the law and obedience and sanctification and works. This week he tells us what the law doesn't do. Next week he talks about what the law actually does do, and I can't wait for us to get there. But I actually think there's a better question we need to be asking when we start to squirm at this idea of free grace. There's a better question we should ask. And I actually I think it's the question that's really beneath the surface of our questions of how our obedience relates to our faith. And it's really simple. We squirm at the idea of grace. We ask, surely I have a role in this because we're just not certain that faith in Jesus is enough to receive God's blessing. The question beneath our question of how the law relates to faith is how can I be certain that faith in Jesus is enough to receive God's blessing. That's what's at the heart of our discomfort with so much grace from God. The gospel of grace received by nothing but simple faith makes us uneasy because God promises so much. His promises are overwhelming. He promises to give us so much and yet we know that we deserve so little. So we become uncomfortable. And all I have to do as someone who doesn't deserve anything from God, yet receives everything from God, all I have to do is believe? How can I be certain that that is enough? How can you have the certainty of a C.S. Lewis? I saw this on Twitter this week. Twitter is just a dumpster fire these days, but I, I, sometimes you see just glimpses, and you're like, wow, this is amazing, you know, but I saw this quote from C.S. Lewis somebody pulled out, and it was, you know, C.S. Lewis was a writer, theologian during World War II, and, you know, World War II is, you know, really rough, and so, like, he's writing all these books, and he's on the radio all the time, but, I mean, you know, they're in a war, so someone just asked him, they were like, so uh, if, uh, if, you know, the Germans drop an atom bomb on England, and you see the bomb coming, you know, what, what's the last thing you're going to say or think or write, you know, just trying to get in C.S. Lewis' said he's a brilliant man, brilliant, you know, what, what's the last thing that you're going to be thinking? And C.S. Lewis, he says, I would look up at the bomb and I would say, Phew, you're just a bomb, I'm an immortal soul, you're just a bomb, I'm an immortal soul, that kind of certainty, you're just a bomb. That no matter what comes, you're not doubting who you belong to. No matter what comes, you are certain that God has you in his grasp. So how can we be certain that our simple faith in Jesus is enough to save us? Paul gives us three answers in verses 15 through 18. We can be certain that our faith in Jesus is enough to receive God's blessing because, reason number one, God's blessing is a promise, and God always keeps his promises. So, reason number one that you can be sure that simple faith in Jesus is enough to receive God's blessing is first, God's blessing is a promise, and God always keeps his promises. The second reason, the promise of blessing was made to Jesus. The promise of blessing was made to Jesus. And the third reason, that we can be certain that our simple faith in Jesus is enough to receive God's eternal blessing, because a promise needs only to be believed. A promise needs only to be believed. All right, so let's, let's take these one at a time. First, we can be sure, because God's blessing is a promise, and God always keeps his promises. Let's look at verse 15. Paul begins his argument by referencing an example from everyday life. He says, to give a human example, brothers, or another way to say that, to give an example from everyday life, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, scholars are actually bewildered on on this, this little verse here. They're not exactly sure what Paul's talking about because... You know, it's almost as if he's saying that once you enter into a covenant with another person, you cannot annul that that contract or that agreement, that will. Even it's really referring to a will or a testament, the word covenant's used here. So it, it, Paul's seeing the situation where there is a will, there is a testament, there is a covenant that has been entered into, it's been ratified, and you can't change it. You can't annul it. And scholars struggle with that because they're looking at Paul's day and and that really wasn't a thing, you know, there, people could annul contracts all the time. Um, but, but Paul is really making a simple point. He's saying that there are certain kinds of human covenants, certain kinds of, of human contracts that cannot be broken by a change of circumstances. So if, if you think of a man who, uh, who makes and ratifies a will— for instance, and in that will he has two daughters, and the older daughter is supposed to receive this inheritance of, of property or land or whatever, whatever it would be, um, and, and then the man dies. At the time, at the time when the man wrote the will and ratified the will, uh, they had a great relationship, and he wanted his oldest, older daughter to receive the inheritance, but just before he died, they have a big falling out. They have this massive falling out. They're at each other's throats, and everybody in the community knows that they just hated each other, and it was the saddest thing ever. But then the man dies, but before he died before he changed his will. So his will remains the same. Who, who should be the one to get the, the inheritance, the property, the land? Well, just because the circumstances changed, that doesn't mean that now all of a sudden the younger daughter receives the inheritance because of what the will dictated. So he's kind of envisioning the situation. Paul's point is humans have some kinds of covenants, contracts, wills, testaments that cannot be changed, cannot be annulled simply because the circumstances changed. And so he's using this as an example to make a simple point. If humans who change their minds all the time have certain kinds of covenants that cannot be changed, then certainly a covenant that is made by God himself is unchangeable. Not even the law of Moses can change the promise God made to Abraham. But we need to back up. We need to continue going back to Genesis because we are not overly familiar with this story. Do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham? The promise that he made to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12... And again in Genesis 15, God established a covenant relationship with a man named Abraham. He promised that Abraham and his offspring would inherit an eternal, universal blessing and a glorious land. This was a promise of salvation, of restoration, and return to the way things were always meant to be. Now, I don't know if you've ever considered how significant that promise is. So, he basically promises Abraham two things blessing and land. Blessing and land. And as we know in the history of Israel, it was the promised land that was the first fulfillment of this promise that God made to Abraham. But it's blessing and it's land. If you want to, turn back to Genesis 1 with me really quickly. That one's easy to find. I don't have to do a lot of searching for Genesis 1. It's right at the beginning. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, and we'll be in verses 26 through 28. As you're turning there, here's what we see. We see in Genesis 1 that God created humanity to live with him and to live for him. The original humans were given dominion to rule and care for the earth. They were given the task of populating the earth and filling the earth with the glory of God. Humanity, this this first couple, in relationship with their creator, they walked in the blessing of God. They experienced true peace and true joy, and they had meaning and purpose in their lives, and they lived in this glorious land where the presence of God dwelled. So let's, let's look at this really quickly. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, What do we see here? As God created people in his image, what does he give them? In verse 28, and God blessed them. The blessing of God was on humanity. Humanity was made for the blessing and peace and joy of God. And they were also given the land. Let us, let us give them dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. They were given a land, but most specifically, they were given the Garden of Eden as a place where they would dwell with God. But, as we know, sin entered the world. The original couple chose to make their own way. All they had to do was believe God. All they had to do was believe God, trust God. And they didn't. They wanted to make their own way. They wanted to find their own purpose. They essentially stopped trusting and start performing. You notice that, right? As, as Satan tempts them to take and eat, they stop trusting and relying on God's means of provision, and they want to make their own way. They want to make their own means of provision. They want to provide for themselves. They want to perform to accomplish something for themselves And what did they lose? Have you ever considered, as you've read Genesis 3, what do we find as God pursues them and confronts them in their sin? They lose blessing, right? That's what the curses imply. The man is cursed, the woman is cursed, the earth is cursed. Curse replaced blessing. The curse of sin and death now replaced the blessing of life and joy But what else did they lose? They didn't just lose blessing, they lost land. They lost land. At the end of Genesis 3, and you can read that later, but what we see is this this really, really cool story about how the people are banished from the Garden of Eden and that there are these two angelic beings who who are placed to guard the way back to the Garden of Eden. They have these flaming swords to make sure that no one comes back in. So, because of sin, they lose the land and they lose the blessing of God. Now, after that, from, from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, sin spread as rapidly as humanity did. Even, even after Noah, right? Even after God floods the earth, starts over with Noah, what's still present? Sin. Sin. Sin and it continues to spread sin and death and self-righteousness and pride and evil. They spread like this uncontrollable virus, and humanity is self-destructing. And then we turn the page to Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 12. And we see the Lord himself intervene. And we've said it. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I just want you to be aware of this. It's not like Abraham looked all around him and said, you know what, this is not how things are supposed to be going. We need to get back to the good old days of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to find God. I'm going on a journey and I'm... No. Abraham was just like everyone else. Sinful, broken, wretched, not looking for God. And yet the Lord intervened, he chose Abraham... And he sought to recover what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So what does God promise Abraham? He promises him blessing. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And he promises him land. He promises to give him a land. One day, as we said, the people of Israel will dwell in the promised land, but it's looking forward to this great day when the curse will be lifted and the Garden of Eden will return. God promises restoration and salvation and happiness and peace that will never end. But Paul, I hope you see this in Galatians 3, we're back there. Paul wants us to notice what's absent from the Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 covenant promises. So so as much as he's pointing out what's there, blessing, promises of salvation, he also wants us to see what's not there, conditions on Abraham. Do you notice that? There are no conditions placed on Abraham. God doesn't say, Abraham, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to bless you and your family. And I'm going to create this new world for you and all of your descendants only if you follow these rules. My end of the deal is I'm going to give you blessing. You're into the deal. You got to obey me. God doesn't say, Abraham, eternal blessing is yours if you don't mess everything up. Blessing, salvation. It's yours, Abraham. Just hold up your end of the deal. Nope. We don't see conditions or terms for Abraham to uphold because it wasn't a deal. It wasn't a contract. It was a covenant that was based on promise. It was a promise. The blessing of Abraham is a promise. This glorious future, this return to Eden, the salvation that God promised That God is going to enact it is all his doing it is his initiative it is his promise and it is his action Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 record God telling Abraham over and over and over I will I will I will go read the passages later you will not find these words you must you must you must and so what did Abraham do Abraham received this promise and entered into this relationship simply by taking God at his word. He believed. And in Genesis 15, Paul, earlier in Galatians 3, said that it was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation and blessing come through promise, not performance. And it works this way with us. God has promised to save and bless us forever through Jesus all we have to do is take God at his word. Believe him. Believe his promise by believing in Jesus. Now why does Paul get into all of this? What's the point? Well, he knows that God gave the law to Moses hundreds of years after he made this promise to Abraham. And so Paul knows in his mind it could be argued, and it may have even been the argument of the false teachers in Galatia, that the law of Moses served as an amendment to the promise of Abraham. That Yes, that's how it worked with Abraham, but now the law has come, and now you do have to obey the law in order to belong, in order to be accepted, in order to be saved. Things are different now. But when God gave his law, he wasn't going back on his promises. This is Paul's point. Adding law obedience as a condition for receiving salvation would nullify the promise made to Abraham. It would be a completely new situation. And it's unthinkable because of God's character. God is unchangeably faithful to his promises. God never breaks a promise. So the commands of the law, this is Paul's point, they did not change the assurances of the promise. Eternal blessing seems so far from us because we know how messed up we are. We know how sinful we are. So we think, how could a God so perfect bless us? And if he is going to bless us, surely it has to do with me fixing myself first. We know we don't deserve it. If receiving God's blessing, though, was up to us being good enough to deserve it, we would have no hope for assurance assurance of salvation is impossible if it depends on your obedience if it depends on your works you will only be insecure but consider for a second especially any of you who struggle with assurance consider for a second the deep assurance of salvation we have when it is based not on our works but on a holy God keeping a promise What if your salvation depended on God keeping a promise? Can you be certain of it then? In Jesus, the blessing of God has entered our world through the world of death, bringing a hope that we could never achieve. And what we see here is that salvation is all of grace, all of promise, and God never goes back on his promises. But that's not where we typically look for assurance of salvation. Where do we look? We look within. We look at our lives. We look at the impact that we have on others. We look to ourselves to answer the question, how do I know that I'm really saved? So even though Paul is very clear that the gospel promise and the law commands do not mix, we mix them up all the time. It's almost like we love to do it. Think about it, this past Wednesday night, we did an activity here at, at Trace where we were talking about spiritual habits. And so we had, we had a whiteboard up and, and we were just listing different spiritual habits that help us love God more. You know, what are those things in your life that help you love God more? And so we talked about Bible study, we talked about prayer, we talked about fasting and worship and even confession and repentance as is, is habits we need to be in in order for us to love God more, hate our sin, all, all of those things. But instead of taking a list like that, And saying, God has been so gracious to me. And in responding to that grace by by being close to him through those means, here's what we do with it. We take that list and we test our salvation on the basis of that list. All right, Bible study. Well, I read the Bible every now and then. I I don't know the last time I studied the Bible. Am I even saved? Do you... I know what you mean when you say that. But do you recognize what you're actually saying? That somehow, in some way, maybe small, your salvation depends on what you do. That maybe God started this whole thing, but but I'm going to mess it up. Or maybe I'm, I'm really not saved because I don't see any fruit. You have to be careful thinking that way. The deepest assurance is not found when you look to your own obedience. Deepest assurance is found when you look to the faithfulness of God. Is God going to break his promise to save you in Jesus? And if the answer is no, you can be certain that you are saved if you are trusting in Jesus. God will never break his promise. And the blessing of salvation comes through A promise. All right. Second reason that we can be sure that simple faith in Jesus is enough. This promise was not just made to Abraham, it was made to Jesus. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. We laugh so much at this this week. I know that sounds really bad that we were laughing at the Bible, but um, we just that that kind of argument. Whenever someone makes an argument like that to us, we laugh at that. It's like, really, you're you're, you're going to make some profound point because of one letter, offspring. So it doesn't say, look here now, look here. I could just hear like my you know just from Eastern Kentucky some of my deepest friends. Now look here now, look here. It don't say no. It don't say no offsprings don't say offsprings says the offspring you know and just emphasizing that like singular you know what that means now and so we can we're tempted to be like okay paul i don't okay this may not be the best argument here this may not be the best not your brightest moment but it's easy to miss what paul's actually saying here paul notices how god words his promise The promise of eternal and universal blessing was to Abraham Abraham and to his offspring, or his seed, singular. Now, here's why we can think this is a little silly. Obviously, obviously, when you read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and you do see this. You see where it says, to Abraham and to your offspring. We know that he is referring to all of Abraham's descendants. It's it's a word kind of like our word family, Family, it's singular, it's not families, family. But families are referring to a group of people, not, not an individual person. So, you know, the word offspring is singular, but it refers to this group of people. When God promised blessing to Abraham and his offspring, he means that Abraham and all of his descendants are receiving this promise. And Paul knows this, though. This is why we can't really laugh at Paul or give him a hard time. He knows this. If, if you look down to verse 29, Paul writes, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And, you know, I kind of want to give him a hard time. Offspring or offsprings, you know. But he knows. He, know, he knows how to use the word. He knows what the word means. It's referring to a group of people. So why is he going to all this effort to focus so much attention on one specific offspring? One specific descendant. He is explaining why the faith that receives salvation cannot just be generic. The faith that receives the promise of Abraham can't just be a generic faith, I believe in God, or I believe there is a God. That doesn't receive the promise of the blessing of Abraham. Faith that receives the promise, the promised blessing to Abraham, is faith in Jesus specifically. We can't just generally believe. The idea that God promised to save us from our sin. We must believe specifically in Jesus in order to receive this promised blessing. Now, here's how it works. When God made his promise to Abraham, he also made it to Jesus. That's simply what Paul is saying here. That when the promise was made, it was made to Abraham and to his offspring, specifically this one descendant, Christ. So he makes the promise to Jesus. The blessing of Abraham is found in this one particular offspring. This promise for a new world, for peace, for blessing, for salvation is found and fulfilled in Jesus alone. All the families of the earth will be blessed, as was promised to Abraham, in Jesus. The Garden of Eden, the land, the promised land, is recovered in Jesus, peace with God is found in Jesus so we can be sure that all we are hoping for and more is found in Jesus because God didn't just make a promise to us that is found through Jesus I hope you see that here God made the promise itself to Jesus so if you have Jesus you have hold of the blessing of God promised to Abraham Now, how does that help us with assurance? How does that help us know that our simple faith is enough, enough for us to be saved? Well, if the gospel promise was made to Jesus, do you think that God will ever double-cross his own son? So, it's not just that God made a promise to you and God will never break his promise. God made the promise to Jesus We don't deserve God's blessing. So you you would be wrong, but you could reasonably argue yourself into doubting that God will continue to keep such a promise to someone like you. But Jesus does deserve God's blessing. He did live a sinless, perfect life. So if you have Jesus, God is going to include you in the new world he promised to Jesus. As, As Paul later writes, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Because God's blessing is a promise, and because that promise is made to Christ, your simple faith in Jesus is enough. There is no future world apart from Jesus. There is no future world of peace and happiness and blessing and acceptance And belonging apart from Jesus. So here's why that's good news. Since that's true, there is no one too far from God to be accepted by God today. All it takes is the humble realization that it doesn't depend on you, but on Christ. So whatever you've done, you have genuine hope for a glorious future because of what Jesus has done for you. His life, death, and resurrection are signs that God has kept his promise and that he's never turning back on it. So, my encouragement to you, if you have never trusted in Jesus, would be to get in on this blessing. Get in on this salvation by believing in Jesus. That's it. And once you're in And this goes for everyone in the room who's trusted Christ too. Once you're in, you're in. And you're in for good. Your salvation is as sure as God the Father's commitment to His own Son. So we can be sure of our salvation because God made that promise to Jesus. One last idea. One last reason that you can be sure of your salvation. A promise only has to be believed. A promise only has to be believed. You see, faith in Jesus is enough because you can't earn a promise. You can only receive a promise. A promise can only be believed. In verse 18, Paul offers two options. All right? Here's what he says. For if the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise here are the the two options salvation is either inherited on the condition of obedience or on the condition of faith you either earn or receive salvation not both that's why Paul says you can't just sprinkle the law in now and say well you you know you got to be circumcised And believe in Jesus in order to be truly accepted that's not how it works it's either through obedience to the law or it's through faith in Jesus now our obedience and our faithfulness to God they have their place but Paul is saying that if they are necessary for salvation then salvation is by works not promise so consider two ways you can receive an inheritance I don't know if any of you have ever received an inheritance but two ways that you can receive an inheritance the first option you have a relative who leaves you an inheritance of money on the condition that you do something like graduate college with a bachelor's degree, something like that. What do you, well, how, can, how do you receive that inheritance? You gotta, you gotta graduate college. You gotta, you gotta meet the condition. Well, another option, you have a relative that leaves you an inheritance of money with no conditions. No conditions. How do you receive that inheritance? You just gotta believe that it's true show up right you just got to believe it the good news for us is that the inheritance of salvation is not earned by performance but received through promise Paul says the inheritance of Abraham's blessing comes as a gift of God's grace do you notice the language at the end of verse 18 God gave it to Abraham by a promise how do you receive a promise just by believing the one who made it that's how you receive a promise the promise made to abraham was a promise made to christ and a promise made to you but paul tells us you have a choice to make this morning and every morning he he essentially puts us at a fork in the road with two possible paths one path is the path of the law you can try to depend on your own good, goodness You can try to live a good and decent life. You can try to follow the rules as best you can, cross your fingers, and hope it all works out in the end. If you're in that position, maybe you think that you are so good that you don't need Jesus. Or maybe you think you're so bad that you can't have him. The other path is the path of the gospel. You stop depending on yourself. You realize that a good and decent life isn't good enough anymore. You realize that you are bad enough to need a Savior and you believe the promise God has made to you and to Christ that in Him you will receive an inheritance of a future eternal blessing and a future glorious world. Now, when you walk on the path of the law, your salvation will depend on the demands that you are unable to meet. So if you are just subtly even, depending on your own works, that may be the reason that you have no assurance that you are saved. Because when you walk on the path of the law, you walk on shaky ground. But when you walk on the path of the gospel, you walk on a solid foundation that will never crack beneath your feet. And you don't have to worry about falling off the path christ will keep your feet steady when you receive jesus by faith you don't have to live in fear that you may mess things up so much that you miss out on salvation when you receive jesus by faith you inherit a blessing as sure as god's faithfulness to his own word god's grace is that powerful his promise is that certain so rest in jesus and walk in the freedom that John Bunyan felt when he wrote this poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings that bids us fly and gives us wings.